This is an ACR 2022 podcast, especially for you mavens, aficionados, and experts in this specific topic, either lupus, RA, PSA, or SPA. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Jack Cush. I'm here on the convention floor at ACR 2022, Philadelphia. The morning has just begun. I just came out of the year in review, a popular session. So popular they had an overflow room, which means they must have had 5,000 plus people viewing this thing. Two presenters, a clinical and a basic scientist, Dr. Carol Langford from the, clinical, the Cleveland Clinic and Dr. John Varger from the University of Michigan did a stellar job. Carol put uh, out the call for what was the highlights of this year as far as the year in review, the best stuff in the clinical sciences. She had a few. One, the Gloria trial, a pragmatic study of steroid use in uh, RA patients over the age of 65. Second was, as you would expect, the oral surveillance study, tofacitinib versus a TNF inhibitor and its safety woes. The mirror study she highlighted, which is the methotrexate being added on top of peglodicase in refractory and difficult to treat gout patients. And then, of course, the new indication of something we've been using for many years, the FDA approved this year, the IVIG uh, approach to treating uh, patients with dermatomyositis. Again, we've done it for years, but now we have an FDA indication. We presented that, that data last year at this meeting. Uh, the other big thing, it's in press, is the CART T-cell um, directed therapy at CD19 or, C or B cells. Uh, a great paper from Georg Shett showing how you could take train wreck refractory SLE patients who failed everything and give them these CAR T cells and they all went into remission off of their biologics. Um, next was um, what she closed with uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, something that we should be considering in our patients who are immunosuppressed, especially those on rituximab, uh, as a way of uh, keeping them safe even here at the tail end of the rituximab pandemic. She had others. John Varga dealt with the basic science side. He led with, uh, and he also received input from colleagues and, and culled what he thought was the most important. A few from him was um, the report of a TLR7, a toll-like receptor 7 variant that leads to a higher susceptibility for lupus. By having this variant in TLR7, you have a gain of function sensitivity to um, uh, nucleic acids, therefore leading to this immunogenic response, more B cells, more plasma, uh, cytoid B cells, et cetera, leading to lupus. It's that, so sort of discovered as a human mutant, but then reproduced via CRISPR technology in animals. Really exciting. Also, the um, increased expression of CD8, CD38 um, in lupus patients was found and also found to be associated with lupus patients with infection. He sort of went um, and just sort of discussed how that happens, really interesting. Uh, another paper on uh, immune activity in non-lesional lupus skin that's similar to lesional lupus skin, saying that even though the skin isn't involved by looking at it, by seeing a malar rash or a discoid rash, there's a lot going on in the skin of patients with lupus. And then um, lastly, he, he, he had others, but uh, he talked about a vaccination-based approach to and with immunotherapy um, to target uh, pro-fibrotic cells, a way of treating these conditions like scleroderma, ILD, et cetera, where fibrosis is a big problem. A great session, really informative. The year in review, another knockout here at ACR. Tune in for more. Hi, it's Artie Kavanaugh coming to you from ACR Convergence 2022 in Philadelphia for Room Now. A lot of good abstracts, including abstracts about psoriatic arthritis. One that I'm going to talk about right now, abstract 1598. Safety and efficacy of Ducravacitinib, an oral selective tyrosine kinase 2 or TIC2 inhibitor in patients with psoriatic arthritis. Phase two, the results from a phase 2 study at 52 weeks. Interesting abstract, I think because of some of the measures and also with some of the design issues. So in this study, two different doses of Ducravacitinib were compared with placebo and did much better in all the different domains of psoriatic arthritis. 
For the patients who had not reached minimal disease activity, they then were treated with ustekinumab, as were the patients who received placebo. As I said, of course, in the original part that was reported, the blinded part, uh, people did better. 25% of the Ducravacitinib patients achieved minimal disease activity, or MDA, which is one of our goals in psoriatic arthritis. All the patients then were switched to treatment with ustekinumab, an approved inhibitor of IL-1223 that we use in psoriatic arthritis and our colleagues in dermatology use in psoriasis. The people who stayed on ducravacitinib sustained their response through the rest of the year, through week 52. Good levels of response, a little bit of an increase, and a low level of the PASTAS, which was also included as an outcome in this study. Patients who were switched to the ustekinumab did show improvement, although the levels of improvement were not as high as those who had achieved MDA in the initial part of the study. So I think there are several aspects of this that are worth noting. It's great to have newer therapies for psoriatic arthritis, a lot of interest in TIC2 inhibition as questions come about whether it may be different and how it would be different from the other JAK inhibs. And I think unique aspects of a study design, we like a switching to an alternative mechanism and of course the use of another instrument, the PASDES. So a lot of good information here and things that I think will be useful to us in the clinic. So with that, thank you very much. This is Dr. Artie Kavanaugh coming to you from ACR 22 for Room Now. I'm Anthony Chan, consultant rheumatologist from London, United Kingdom, reporting here for Room Now at ACR 22. There have been lots of interesting papers looking at new therapies, and the area that we are really interested in is the use of uh, JAK inhibitors. These have come along and uh, has really uh, revolutionized some of the treatments, especially in areas such as axospondyloarthritis. One of the concerns that we have is about the incidence of um, major cardiovascular events or venous thromboembolism. And there was a study uh, presented here at ACR22 poster 510, where the, uh, they looked at the use of uh, upadacitinib, which is a selective JAK1 inhibitor, uh, across indications in rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and also ankylosing spondylitis. And here they had over 6,000 patients who uh, were recruited into the uh, studies, uh, and this involved nine different studies, and they looked particularly into the aspect of major cardiovascular events, MACE, and also VTEs. When you look at the uh, population study, the 40 to 50 percent of these patients had two or more risk factors for cardiovascular events, and also more than a quarter of them were above the age of 65. This immediately would put them at risk of having cardiovascular events and also a possible venous thromboembolism. What was interesting in this study across uh, the nine studies when they pulled the data was the actual incidence of uh, MACE was low. Uh, they were none in the, uh, in the ankylosing spondylitis group and 41 in the rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis group. When they looked at these uh, patients who had MACE in the RA and PSA group, they were enriched for risk factors. So these were standard risk factors uh, such as hypertension, uh, and diabetes that, that predisposed them to having these risks. The number of patients that uh, who, who did not have the risk was actually quite small uh, in the people who developed maize on the treatment. So this is uh, an interesting study. It adds to our knowledge uh, of uh, how we would manage our patients and make, making sure that we assess and also treat their risk factors if they are on treatment with a JAK inhibitor. There was also a study uh, at uh, 0404, uh, which is a study looking at another JAK inhibitor, a PAN-JAK inhibitor called tofacitinib. Uh, and here, this is a, an oral uh, JAK inhibitor, and they were looking at one of the aspects, uh, which is uh, antocytis. Uh, this paper really uh, showed that it's actually quite sometimes quite challenging to assess antocytis, especially when patients also have tender and swollen joints. And the presence of tender and swollen joints may actually affect the outcome uh, when, when patients assess for the antocytis. Nevertheless, this study showed that in patients who 
on the tofacitinib arm. There was improvement in the uh, costochondral and also Achilles uh, enthesitis, uh, taking into account the number of tendons holding joints ahead, and, and these patients did better compared to placebo. Another area that uh, where JAK inhibitors are coming in in the rheumatic diseases are in the area of uh, recycling uh, TNF inhibitors. So we usually, in the past, would have used TNF inhibitors as first-line treatment. And the question is, do we then recycle with another TNF inhibitor or do we switch mode of action? And uh, in poster 1588, they tried to answer these questions where patients had adalimumab as their first-line TNF. And then they would switch either to etanercept or to a JAK inhibitor. And in this study, it showed that there was a slight uh, improvement uh, in, in patients who were switched to JAK inhibitor in terms of some of their outcomes compared to switching to another uh, TNF inhibitor, namely etanercept. Nevertheless, there were some patients who did well on cycling to another TNF. So this study again shows us that there are certain patients who would benefit from a switch and usually in clinical practice, this would be some of our patients who had primary failure to the first TNF or an adverse event, uh, whereas patients who would continue on the uh, TNF inhibitor would usually be people who had a secondary failure. This is, again, uh, an area where we would need to do further studies, especially with the advent of more therapies uh, such as JAK inhibitors in our clinical practice. I'm Anthony Chan, um, reporting here for Room Now at ACR 22. Hi, David Liu here, reporting for Room Now from ACR 2022. All we were talking about last year was oral surveillance and still the legacy keeps on going. I want to tell you something about something slightly related to oral surveillance and some of the data that's washed out from that. Because in oral surveillance, we did see a sub-study in that group of patients who did have some cardiovascular risk. We saw, some, uh, we saw in TNF inhibitors versus JAK inhibitors some infection data and we saw that JAK inhibitors did seem to carry an increased risk for a number of different types of infection. Now, what about East Asian patients? Because we know that they do have different infective risks and they do make up a decent proportion of our patients, but we don't always have the data to inform our decisions in that subpopulation. What we've seen at this meeting, and that's the beauty of ACR, you get data from all around the world, South Korean national insurance data looking at TNF inhibitors versus JAK inhibitors as far as zoster risk is concerned, general bacterial infection, and then opportunistic infections. And what we saw was that general bacterial infections were equal between TNF inhibitors and JAK inhibitors. We saw an outsized risk, as you might imagine, of zoster in this population with JAK inhibitors over TNF inhibitors. Even with this enriched population, we saw a 2.3 times greater risk of zoster infection in JAK inhibitor treated patients versus TNF inhibitor patients. Um, although we did see slightly more opportunistic infections with TNF inhibitor treated patients versus JAK inhibitor patients. The point I'll make though is that it's a lot more common to get zoster, serious zoster in fact, in this population compared to opportunistic infections. So plenty to consider as we go about trying to still uh, piece um, apart the real data from our surveillance in real decisions that we have to make in clinic. For plenty more on rheumatoid arthritis, head on down to roomnow.com. Hello, everyone. My name is Michelle Petrie. I'm from Johns Hopkins. And today for Room Now, I want to discuss how much we need new treatments for SLE. In particular, we need them for the very common non-renal lupus manifestations. And I wanted to emphasize how much we need new treatments for joints, because in every single clinic, I'm giving triamcinolone injections for joint flares. I think many of you know that I don't ever increase oral prednisone because I'm too worried about long-term steroid side effects. But I do give triamcinolone 100 milligrams IM for non-renal flares. 
So I wanted to discuss this abstract. It's abstract 1117 to show the, the hope but also the potential pitfalls as new medications are developed for lupus. And this abstract is about ducrovacetitinib. You know, I think we should limit everything to four syllables, which is an allosteric TIC2 inhibitor. This is not the first time you've heard about it. It was also presented at ULAR. So where are we now for skin and joints? For skin, of course, we're going to start out with hydroxychloroquine, and then we're going to add methotrexate, mycophenolate, or azathioprine. If it's discoid lupus, you know, our dermatology colleagues may consider drugs in the thalidomide family. And then when we turn to biologics, we have two choices, bulimumab or anaphrolumab. For joints, again, we start out with hydroxychloroquine, then we add methotrexate or azathioprine. We try very hard not to give anti-TNF unless it's a rupus, a true overlap, because we're so concerned about anti-TNFs not just causing lupus, but increasing lupus antibodies like antiphospholipid and anti-DNA. And then for biologics, we have bulimimab, although many of us use other things off-label, don't we? So what might the TIC2 inhibitor add? Well, you know, many early studies, you know, think of them like phase one, some of them were investigator-initiated, showed benefit of JAK inhibitors. So then what happened with baricitinib was very disappointing because in the phase two trial, it did show benefit for joints, but only one of the two phase threes had positive results, you know, it was for joints. But in particular, a TIC2 inhibitor might be safer than a JAK inhibitor because we don't like the JAK inhibitor boxed warnings in our lupus patients because lupus patients already have a propensity for those problems like thrombosis and malignancy. So I wanted to show you this summary of the key efficacy results, but then I'm going to hone down on some of the things I want you to see because they're super important as we compare and contrast lupus trials going forward. So this trial is quite complete in terms of its presenting all the important outcome measures. And, you know, at a first look here, you're going to say, oh, this is a nicely positive trial. But I, I want you to think more carefully about what the results actually might mean. So first of all, they do show the results for individual organs. And I think that's key. And I think we should require that of all lupus trials. But do you see the big surprise? What organ is this good for? It's pretty obvious it's skin, isn't it? Because that's what the classy result is all about. Look at that delta for classy. Like this is an oh my God moment in lupus. Now look at the active joint count. You can see, of course, there's a problem. The lower dose worked better. It isn't that it evened off, right? The higher doses worked less well. And in fact, that medium dose, you know, only has a 7% delta versus the standard of care. That's not very impressive, you know, even given the fact that many lupus trials are not that impressive. So uh, a kind of like a problem, right? This is not going to be your go-to joint drug if these kinds of results held up in phase three. Now, I'm very glad they put in LLDAS. You know that lupus low disease activity measure is my favorite outcome measure in the clinic because it requires that the disease activity be low and the prednisone be below 7.5. So you can see that about 36% of patients achieve this wonderful goal. But now again, remember how concerned I am by that drop-off that patients did much less well on the higher doses. So, you know, a concern. Now let's look at SRI. Now, why look at SRI and, you know, not look at BICLO? Well, of course, I don't mind if you look at both. But the advantage of the SRI is the only way to lose points on the SLE day is by that manifestation resolving. So this doesn't look at partial improvement. This looks at what I'm going to say is a very meaningful improvement. And you see that there is a very nice delta with a low dose. 
Now, the, the, the medium and, and, and the third dose are really the same, aren't they? Six BID and 12 once a day. So we're not surprised that those two give the same answer. But you see, of course, it's less. And if we take that 44.9 for the 12 once a day, you know, there's only a 10% delta versus the standard of care. And I think we're, we are looking for more than that in lupus trials. Now, one problem this has is that it appears to be a skin drug and skin only gets two points on the sleet A, joints get four. So that hurt this in the SRI analysis. Remember, I still think it's very impressive for skin. Now let's think about adverse events because remember that was one of the themes for today. The JAK inhibitors have adverse events that are seriously unwanted in lupus. But in the baricitinib phase two and phase threes, you know, there wasn't a signal for thrombosis and they did let antiphospholipid positive patients in. So at least that particular worry was never realized in the clinical trial setting. But now all you have to do is look at the last three on this uh, uh, on this table. So you see there's no signal for malignancy, atherosclerotic cardiovascular events, or thrombosis. So that's all very good news because, you know, we need more skin drugs. This would be an easy thing to give, right? Because it's got an adverse event profile that I think you and your patients are going to be very willing to tolerate. So where have we come in this whirlwind tour of TIC1 versus JAK inhibitors? The TIC2 inhibitor is promising for skin. If this holds up in phase three, this would be a very welcome addition. Now, this is not the first RCT in lupus to fail to show a nice dose response, meaning that the higher doses work better, but you know, maybe theoretically higher doses would have more toxicity. What on earth does this mean? Well, I think it means that when you give a higher dose, other immune pathways kick in that then negate some of the benefit. And I think this should worry everybody because you got to be so sure that you pick the right dose because there is what I'm going to call a narrow therapeutic window before you start to lose the benefit. Now, phase two success does not guarantee phase three success in lupus. We've seen that so many times. Why? Well, I think part of the problem is when you get to phase three, the companies have to recruit many more sites. And some of those sites may not be facile with the physical exam that's necessary for lupus or for completing the instruments. I mean, come on, guys, it's a multi-organ disease. It's often hard for me to correctly uh, assess it when I'm in the clinic. So some of the problems that might occur in joints is, you know, I don't care about the total joint count. I only care about the joints that are typically involved in lupus. You know, when you look at the person's hand, you want to see the valleys between the second and third MCPs. We know in the ultrasound studies, those are the joints that are involved in lupus. I don't want to hear what's happening in the knees, for example. That's usually going to be something else like osteoarthritis or AVN or even fibromyalgia tender points. So I really care that we change our trial designs and I'm an advocate for an MRI rather than let the physician mess things up. Now, how could we have problems with skin? Well, if the lesion is old and scarred, like many discoid lesions are, it can be sometimes confuse. So I would like to have photographs adjudicated. But so far, I haven't been successful in changing the study designs of lupus clinical trials. But I just wanted you to understand the pitfalls and why even though this seems to be so exquisitely positive for skin, we still need to see the phase three results. I want to thank you all for listening. I want to remind you that Room Now is there at the ACR, always there for you. Room Now is where all the action is. Thank you. It's November 11th, 2022. Hi, I'm Jack Cush. This is the Room Now podcast. 
We're on the eve of ACR 2022, ACR Convergence here in Philadelphia. Uh, and we're going to go over a few items from this past week in the news and then preview some of the exciting things that will be happening in the next few days as Room Now covers ACR 22. Let me begin with a study of cannabis use that actually was more prevalent during the pandemic. Can you imagine that? This is actually a study of 78,000 individuals, and they looked at jurisdictions where cannabis was legal and where it wasn't legal. Um, and um, so there will be illegal. And so there's legal recreational, legal medicinal. I don't want to get into that. But in places where cannabis is legal in the United States, the, the use of it grew significantly during the pandemic compared to pre-pandemic levels. Um, interestingly, in non-legal states where it's illegal, it remained the same. So wider avail availability, uh, it looked like marijuana and THC products were getting sort of the same uptake as was alcohol. All those people staying home with not much to do. As you know, alcohol sales also went up during the pandemic. Not sure what that really means, but uh, again, I'm sort of always interested in the cannabis literature because it's so prevalent and widespread, yet there's little known about its true utility and efficacy, but everybody wants it. So give everybody what they want. I guess that's the way of the world these days. A study of almost 46,000 respondents for over a 20-year period shows that chronic pain has actually increased in that 20-year period. And they looked at prescription use. And not surprisingly, non-pharmacologic uh, analgesic meds uh, was much higher than the use of opioids for chronic pain, but not for surgical pain and not for cancer pain. The point of this, of course, is that it looks like um, government policies and public health measures to reduce the reliance on opioids seems to have had some effect. And congratulations to all of you who have heeded those warnings. Uh, NHANES, as, a, as you know, is an ongoing survey of, of health habits in the United States. Uh, this particular survey looked at sleep habits amongst U.S. adults over the age of 20. They looked at almost 9,000 individuals, and they found that, uh, what do you think is the average sleep time in the United States? What would be a good amount of hours if you were to get in the right amount of sleep? Well, from this study, it was 7.6 hours on work days and 8.2 hours on your free days or the weekends, I would assume. Um, about a quarter slept less than seven hours, and about a quarter went to bed at midnight or later, shame on you, um, and 30% said that they had trouble sleeping. I often quoted that 40% of the population has sleep disorders, and I think that this data is probably closer to the truth. 30% um, trouble sleeping, with 27% having daytime sleepiness. Sleep is a major problem in rheumatology. If you're a rheumatologist treating musculoskeletal pain and you don't pay attention to sleep, you've totally missed the boat. You're misdiagnosing all kinds of things. Sleep is responsible for chronic pain, chronic fatigue, strange numbness, migraine headaches, irritable bowel syndrome. I mean, it's a myriad of things that are all rooted in poor sleep. Uh, and it doesn't have to be, you know, sleep apnea or, um, uh, I mean, there's a mirror, again, there's a, a wide range of sleep disorders that need to be addressed. Now, do you want to be the doctor that has to manage that? That's sort of the secondary part of this. It's a beating, isn't it? Anyway, it's a reality. We're going to have to deal with it. Uh, as we know, Plaquenil is the miracle drug for lupus. Uh, it's been shown to do everything from lower blood sugar levels and lipid levels and have an anticoagulant effect and promotes better pregnancy outcomes. We do know that it has a significant effect on uh, uh, outcomes in lupus patients, including mortality. This is a meta-analysis of 21 studies, 26,000 patients, showing that SLE significantly lowers mortality risk by 54%. Um, it was also uh, uh, capable of lowering mortality risk in lupus patients with renal disease by 57%, and patients with lupus patients with cardiopulmonary disease by 63%. Again, it, why is your patient with lupus not taking Plaquenil? 
I don't think you have a good reason. Uh, another interesting study was a cluster analysis of only 112 patients, but they were specifically looking at what kind of patients had erosive arthritis with lupus. Uh, and what they did see that arthritis in arthralgia is quite common. Arthritis was seen in 27% um, in arthralgia and 73%. Erosive arthritis in 26%. Cluster analysis showed that erosive disease in lupus was, was uh, uh, more commonly associated with CNS manifestations, serositis, positive tests for ACPA, um, CAR-P antibodies, SM, RMP, and Dykoff-1. Interesting analysis. Joseph Smolin did that kind of cluster analysis on lupus patients, oh my goodness, over 20 years ago, showing really how, uh, how different syndromes or different presentations of lupus do cluster. It, it, it is true. I think it's worth um, finding that paper and reviewing it again. A lot of things this week on COVID that are worth noting. Um, the FDA issued an emergency use authorization for the use of anakinra, also known as Kineret, to treat hospitalized uh, COVID patients who are test positive, hospitalized, hospitalized who have pneumonia and are requiring supplemental oxygen. Um, or they're felt to be at high risk for respiratory uh, failure and other severe pulmonary outcomes with lupus. So an EUA for anakinra now joining tocilizumab. The New York Times re uh, um, reported on an article that's in preprint phase talking about the benefits of Paxlovid. Um, and those individuals, this is a large population-based study, showed that individuals who had Paxlovid within five days of having a positive COVID test had a significantly lower risk of having long COVID symptoms. Interesting. Um, and it lowered the risk by 26%. This was an EMR study of COVID patients with um, risk factors for severe infection. 9,000 received Paxlovid, um, I guess 45,000 did not. And again, long COVID symptoms were symptoms of COVID lasting beyond 90 days uh, from their infection. Uh, another bit, uh, 12 patients reported with IgA uh, positive vasculitis post-COVID vaccination. Um, these were males and females age 52. Um, 10 of the 12 had mRNA vaccines. The time from the vaccination to the onset of IgA vasculitis, that would be a henoch line palpable purpura kind of vasculitis, was 11.5 days. Um, um, Two-thirds of them had the vasculitis after the first dose, the other third after the second dose. They all had skin involvement. Seven of the 12 had joint involvement, four GI, two renal. They were all treated with um, steroids. Is this real? Is this really a syndrome? Again, a wider range, array of strange symptoms happening post-COVID. Uh, until proven otherwise, we have to consider it. And then I, you know, I, I saw this other... Um, abstract in the neuro neurology literature um, talking about um, the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2 uh, is capable of, of activating the NLRP3 inflammasome. Um, and that may be, and of course this was looking at that uh, inflammasome activation as the initial step in the development of chronic neurologic diseases. We know the, the NLRP3 inflammasome is also involved in, in inflammation and, and, and immune events. And I think this is one of the reasons why we do see activation of our patients with, it, with their, if they have pre-existing rheumatic disease uh, uh, and they get infected, why they can get worse. Um, or patients who even after their COVID vaccination, uh, either have the onset of a rheumatic disease or worsening of the uh, rheumatic disease. I think it is all driven through the inflammasome and that the, so the spike protein is being perceived as a, as a pathogen uh, pattern that drives activation. Uh, an interesting study, National Swedish Hip and Knee OA Register looked at patients who were actually seen face-to-face -face versus digitally online, almost 7,000 patients. Uh, and it turns out that while they both improved um, in their uh, outcomes, the digital patients had larger improvement in pain and function. So those of you who are saying, you know, I don't want to do digital, I don't want to do telemedicine, that's kind of crazy, it's not for me, uh, I want to get back to the old way. 
You know, there's, there's a growing amount of evidence that says that there are many patients who will do just as well, and in this study, they did better. Now, the question is, was the significant difference in pain and function clinically meaningful? I think we'd have to really look at the data closer to know the answer to that. I think the last big important um, news of the week was the ULAR recommendations for the management of RA with conventional biologic and targeted synthetic um, DMARDs. Um, as you know, this was presented at ULAR 2022 by Dr. Joseph Smolin, who did a fine job uh, walking us through that. They posted up their five overarching principles and 11 recommendations. The highlights of this that are new and something you might want to consider is that they were liberal. Um, unlike the ACR, who are draconian about allowing you or suggesting that you use steroids, ACR guidelines say, don't do it. Please don't do it. And if you have to, get off it. The ULAR guidelines say, sure, go right ahead. If you're going to initiate or change the DMARD, short-term glucocorticoids should be part of the regimen um, and that you should be tapered off and have them discontinue as rapidly as possible. They were, again, much more permissive. I think this is sort of up in lines with what many uh, of us in the United States will actually do. Um, they also said that uh, if patients who have been put on a, you know, a DMARD or whatnot, uh, or a biologic DMARD or targeted synthetic, after the steroids have been discontinued and the patient has sustained remission, they say that you can reduce or space out DMARD therapy, and that includes conventional biologic targeted synthetic, but they do not say that you should stop. So again, reduction is fine, stopping is not. I think that's important. The other thing that they say is that um, patients who you're treating, and if you don't achieve your treat-to-target goal, that you should consider adding on a biologic DMARD or a targeted synthetic. They should say you should consider a JAK inhibitor, but only after pertinent risk factors have been taken into account. It sounds fine, but in fact, it's quite permissive and liberal compared to the FDA guidelines that say, no, use a TNF inhibitor first then a JAK inhibitor. Um, and as you know, the EMA came out with guidelines we talked about last week that they're going to get a little draconian too. So anyway, that's the news from this week. The big news is that we're starting uh, ACR coverage um, today, but really the first day is tomorrow, Saturday. I think what you should, this is my prelude to a meeting um, um, launch, if you will. I think the good news is we're back at a live meeting. This might be the first big meeting for many of you. Uh, I've been back at a number of them, and they've all gone very well. Many people will wear a mask. A lot of people won't wear a mask. That's all well and fine, whatever makes you feel comfortable. The good thing about this meeting is it's going to be very familiar. A lot of the same old things that you're used to seeing, the great debate, curbside consults, you know, um, the year in review, the plenary sessions, etc. A few things that probably are, I think, that you should note. Um, the new thing is that, at, that the posters are kind of out. There's some online posters, but... Having, instead of having 2,000 posters, they're promoting a small subset of posters, about 235, I think, in what's called Ignite Talks. Ignite Talks are poster pre oral poster presentations that are five minutes long, given in rapid succession. If, thus, in an Ignite Talk session, and there's seven of them scattered throughout the three days, they're 55 minutes, five minutes each, each. that's 11 presentations. Boom, 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 back to back. It's kind of like a cross between a fast-talking auctioneer and a NASCAR race. Jeez, I just hope these people speak English. I think I'm going to be numb after attending one of these uh, sessions. The question is, why? I think the ACR is doing this so that we could avoid, you know, thousands of people milling around and, and having a superseder poster event. I, I think that's the rationale behind this, but... This is like speed dating, learning poster style. I don't know. Uh, I'm going to try it out. I might go poster on this. Uh, we'll see. I'll give you a recap next week. I'm looking forward to a lot of different guidelines being presented this week. Um, no major ones. I think there's a JIA remission guideline, Kawasaki's glucocorticoid-induced osteoporosis, the fifth rendition of the vaccination for rheumatic disease patients where we're getting... Um, to consider all the vaccines, not just the COVID story. Uh, 
um, starting uh, today, Friday, the, the ACR review course, I would suggest that you follow um, Room Now on Twitter because all of our faculty, a number of our faculty are going to the review course and will tweet out basically great pearls that will be delivered by some of our best teachers in rheumatology. It won't be an overwhelming amount of tweets like you're going to have starting tomorrow when the meeting starts. So just the review course, you'll see, I think, really good pearls. You can follow that on Twitter. Saturday is the day, the first day of the meeting. That's tomorrow. Uh, I'm looking forward to the first big session there. I mean, opening business meeting, awards. A lot of great friends like Alan Kivitz are going to get master's awards. Um, and, um, and, the, and then starting 1130 is the plenary session, which goes on for an hour and a half. That's in Hall A. The Image Competition Awards will start the session. I'm looking forward to presentations from the Mirror Study, use of methotrexate in case in difficult gout patients. Cancer screening in myositis. I talked about this yesterday in my QD clinic. Um, and a new biologic marker that drives systemic JIA and mass in kids with systemic JIA. That's all happening um, in the first half of the day uh, at the plenary session. The first Ignite session begins at 1 to 155, sessions 1A, 1B, 1C on three different stages. Again, 11 five-minute poster presentations. Again, it's going to be dizzying. Um, Sunday, they're going to have more Ignite sessions in the morning and the afternoon. Um, maybe the hallmark session of the whole meeting is the session that I'm going to be a part of at 1030, Advancing Telemedicine and Rheumatology. That's in room 108. I'm on the program with uh, Swami Ventura Pali, Jeff Curtis, Maria Danila, Ben Noel, uh, Rebecca Granger. Um, and, uh, and we're going to have a, a one-hour uh, interesting presentation on um, telemedicine and maybe why you should be reconsidering that. The great debate is in the morning. Uh, guidelines for vaccination are going to be at the end of the day on, on Sunday. Uh, and then they have a plenary session. Dan Bio Registry with biosimilar switching. Um, a new, um, uh, I think this is a BTK inhibitor, Remibrutinib in Sjogren's syndrome. I'll be interested in that. As you know, I've often said nothing works in Sjogren's syndrome, so I wouldn't invest in it. Um, but we'll see. Maybe this will work out. Antifibrotics and systemic sclerosis. Also on Sunday, there's a great lecture, in the, I think in the morning, the um, Klemper lecture by Fred Wigley on scleroderma. Fred, you know, as you know from Johns Hopkins, is our, one of our best speakers, one of our best um, teachers and researchers in scleroderma. That should be a great session as well. The last day is Monday. Uh, curbside consults, late-breaking abstracts, adult thieves markets. I think it's going to be a, a great wrap-up to the meeting. My advice to you, if you're, want, if you're on the go, don't have a lot of time to sit and watch hours and hours, is tune in to our topic panels where our faculty who are focused on one topic like RA or uh, SLE will have a topic panel discussion beginning Sunday night, 7 p.m. Eastern. It's going to be, um, you can sign up for it. We're, we're sending out invitations for the webinar if you're a rheumatologist. Otherwise, you can go to our website, our Twitter channel, YouTube channel, Facebook, LinkedIn. We're going to live stream at 7 p.m. Eastern starting Sunday, the lupus topic panel, Monday, the RA topic panel, uh, Tuesday, the psoriatic arthritis topic panel, and then Wednesday, spondoarthritis. Earlier, two hours before that, there's going to be daily recaps by the faculty talking about the highlights of each day, 5 p.m., again, on those same channels. A great way to learn is to tune in room, to Room Now during ACR 22. Hope you're going to enjoy it. Lord knows I will. More to come. Hi everyone, back at the ACR 2022 Convergence here in the historical city of Philadelphia. I'm Dr. Janet Pope, or at Janet Burdope, here reporting as a room reporter at Room Now. I'd like to talk about switching from a JAK inhibitor to something else when a patient has rheumatoid arthritis. So these are data from the OPAL database. So this is abstract number 0274. 
The cool thing about the OPAL database is it's data extracted from the electronic medical records of the rheumatologist in Australia. Most are participating and the patient either says no I don't consent or the data can go. So it's a better way of obtaining consent because it's a dissent or you get the data. So they have a large database and what they have looked at is 5,900 patients with rheumatoid arthritis who have been treated with a JAK inhibitor. So what they find, all the JAKs so far released in Australia have about the same retention. The medium retention is about three years. Um, they also found that 30% uh, or one in three patients go from a JAK in RA to another JAK. What they find when they switch, they found like all the other drugs when we switch within class that they can be helpful, but a little bit less retention and a little bit less of a high DAS uh, response. So you can go jack to jack, you can get a good retention, you can get a good response, but your first is uh, the best. And that's true with the other uh, um, TNFs and everything as well. What is my take home though? My take home message is I think we need randomized controlled trials that say, if you're using first line jack as an advanced therapy, should we randomize patients to jack to jack or jack to other MOA? And then we'd really get the answer on the best durability and the best deep response uh, is within class or outside of class or any of the above. So I hope you look forward to other reports from me and have a great day, thank you. Hi, I'm Julian Sagan from Melbourne, Australia, reporting here from Philadelphia at the ACR Convergence 2022 for Room Now. I want to talk to you about abstract number 916, should patients with rheumatoid arthritis with controlled disease taper methotrexate from targeted therapy or continue it, uh, risk differences in sustained remission uh, from a systematic review and meta-analysis. So this is a systematic uh, review and meta-analysis looking at tapering methotrexate from either biologic therapies or targeted synthetic DMARDs. I think it's probably fair to say that methotrexate is not our patient's favourite medications. Uh, in a lot it can be associated with significant side effects and many of our patients will continue taking it and just putting up with it uh, just because us as doctors tell them to. So the aim of this review was to try and determine what the percentage of patients uh, who have a flare after tapering or stopping abruptly methotrexate whilst taking a targeted synthetic uh, disease-modifying agent or a biologic medication. Uh, so 10 studies were included in this systematic uh, review and meta-analysis. There were three which included etanercept, uh, three for tocilizumab and one each for tofacitinib, sertilizumab, adalimumab and abatacept. There were over 2,000 patients that were included in the final, final meta-analysis. Um, there were, of course, differences in taper strategies uh, between the studies, which limits uh, the uh, applicability somewhat uh, for the overall meta-analysis. Uh, the main result was that there was a 10% reduced chance of remaining in remission in those who tapered methotrexate compared to those who continued methotrexate over the course of one year. Uh, in the study from Cohen and colleagues, uh, quite interestingly, uh, there was actually no significant difference uh, between tapering methotrexate and not tapering methotrexate in patients uh, who were taking tofacitinib. And so that suggests that perhaps there are differences in the uh, mechanism of action uh, when considering tapering methotrexate from a targeted agent. Uh, it would be really good to have more studies which looked at this question, uh, whether tapering some of our other disease-modifying agents uh, allows us to remain uh, in disease control, uh, really because um, some of these medications have side effects and our patients don't really want to be taking lots of extra medications if they don't have to be. Um, there's also significant debate about whether methotrexate should be the uh, disease-modifying agent tapered before targeted synthetic medications or uh, biologic DMARs. And uh, these are uh, questions to be answered in future studies as well as health economic analyses. Uh, we welcome more data in the area and I look forward to reading the full uh, systematic review and meta-analysis. Uh, for more uh, information on rheumatoid arthritis, visit roomnow.com. I'm Dr Julian Sagan from Melbourne, Australia. Hello everyone, I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland, reporting for Room Now from ACR uh, 2022.
and I'm here to talk to you today about um, an oral presentation on Monday. This was by Matthew Baker and colleagues and this was on the reduction in RA interstitial lung disease risk with tofacitinib. So this was a retrospective study uh, using the Optum database and um, they had 28,500 patients um, with rheumatoid arthritis who did not have pre-existing interstitial lung disease. Around 1,500 of those were treated uh, with uh, tofacitinib and the others were treated with other biologic um, agents. So, so they did a number of different analyses here. Um, first of all, they calculated crude incident um, rates um, for the development of interstitial lung disease in the patients on these biologic agents. And for those, they found that adalimumab had um, an incident rate of 3.43 per thousand patient years, rituximab of 6.15 per thousand patient years, uh, tocilizumab of 5.05 per thousand patient years, abadacept of 4.46 per thousand patient years, and tofacitinib of 1.47 per thousand patient years. And they adjusted this for multiple other variables, and they found that tofacitinib versus adalimumab had an adjusted hazard ratio of 0.31 for the development um, of interstitial uh, lung disease in patients with rheumatoid arthritis who are treated with um, biologic um, agents or uh, tofacitinib. The Dermatonin did a second analysis of, these, of this. They did a prevalent new user cohort design with propensity score matching. Um, and again, comparing uh, tofacitinib and adalimumab as the main um, analyses. And they found that the incident rate per thousand patient years of new ILD was 1.48 for tofacitinib and 4.30 for adalimumab, giving an adjusted hazard ratio of 0.33. So this is interesting data. Um, it's uh, still very preliminary. It's a retrospective database-based study uh, with all the inherent limitations um, of that. Um, but it is encouraging to see some uh, potential evidence uh, for a drug which could prevent um, the development of interstitial lung disease in rheumatoid arthritis. We know that um, 8 to 10% of patients with rheumatoid arthritis develop this complication. And when they do develop it, the, the prognosis is not good at all. The, the median survival is three years after diagnosis um, of RA ILD. So any agent that could potentially uh, prevent this uh, would be very uh, welcome. We will wait and see uh, what further uh, studies um, of JAK inhibitors in this area show. So remember uh, to check out Room Now for all the updates um, from ACR 2022. And you can follow me on Twitter at Richard P.A. Conway. I'm Dr. Katherine Sims covering the ACR22 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for Room Now. And today we're going to talk about the impact of upacitinib versus adalidumab in psoriatic arthritis using the RAPID3. This is abstract 0192 from Dr. Laura Coates at the University of Oxford. And this study is a post hoc analysis from the double blind select psoriatic arthritis one trial. And what they did is included patients who had been intolerant or uh, had an inadequate response to more than one biologic or sorry, non-biologic DMARD. They received upacitinib 15 or 30 milligrams per day or adalidumab 40 milligrams every two weeks or they were placed in a placebo group. The placebo group was then switched to upacitinib 15 milligrams or 30 milligrams at week 24. The RAPID3 is calculated using pain scores, patients' global assessment of disease activity, and hack di scores. And these were assessed through week 56. 1,200 patients were included in this study, and patients on upacitinib actually showed greater improvement from their baseline RAPID-3 versus adalidumab at all visits from weeks 15 to 56. By week 56, half of patients on either therapy were either in remission or low activity based off their RAPID-3, which is a wonderful response, but RAPID-3 scores were significantly better in patients on upacitinib 15 milligrams per day. So the takeaway point from this study is that upacitinib 15 milligrams per day led to greater improvements in the RAPID-3 over placebo over a 56-week period. And there were greater improvements over uh, adalidumab from week 16 to 56.